This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 25. What we're doing in HR is creating value in the marketplace. Our people, our organization, our culture, our leadership are all designed so that customers and investors have a better experience. The headline is HR is not about HR. It's about success in the marketplace. What role does HR play in helping your company succeed in the marketplace? Why should you always take an outside-in approach to building your talent strategy? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. This is a big week for the Future of HR podcast. Not only is it our 25th episode, but we are fortunate to have the one and only Dave Ulrich as a guest. Before I introduce Dave, I want to thank each of you for supporting and listening to the Future of HR podcast over the past 24 episodes. The positive feedback that I have received over the past four months has been amazing and made the effort it takes each week to put out an episode worth it. I am truly grateful for your support. And while hitting 25 episodes is a great milestone, we are just getting started in our mission to inspire and develop the next generation of HR leaders. But to reach our goal of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders, I need you to help spread the word. If you know of a next-gen HR leader who would benefit from this podcast, please tell them. If you like this week or past week's episodes, please share on LinkedIn or leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. The Future of HR podcast mission is to elevate our field, and that can only happen with your help. With that, I'm excited and honored to introduce our guest this week, Dave Ulrich. Known as the father of modern HR, Dave's research and writing and consulting has had an immeasurable impact on our field. Over his career, he has published over 200 articles and book chapters and written over 30 books. His ideas have shaped how people and organizations deliver value to customers, investors, and our communities. Dave has been ranked the number one management guru by Business Week, profiled by Fast Company as one of the world's top 10 creative people in business, a top five coach in Forbes, and recognized as Thinkers 50 as one of the world's leading business thinkers. While his list of accomplishments is impressive, what has always impressed me most about Dave was his generosity and passion for elevating our field. While I'm typically the one who asks the questions, Dave and I decided to flip the script, and all the questions that I'm asking Dave today have come from listeners of the show. I know you're going to enjoy our conversation as we discussed why HR is not about HR, why your talent strategy needs to start with one simple question, Dave's advice to next-gen HR leaders on how to get promoted faster than your peers, why the expectations for HR are rising and how we can respond, and how the best leaders use data and intuition to make decisions and much more. Dave, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I am so good, JP. It's just what a delight to join you and uh, share some ideas. We're delighted to sit down with you today and have this conversation. I really appreciate as well that you have allowed us to ask you questions from our listeners. And so we have crowdsourced today's podcast. I've got, of course, some questions I might pop up. But honestly, I'm going to ask what uh, people put on LinkedIn. And so let's jump into it. The first question comes from Edie Goldberg. 
You may even know Edie, I think. She's saying, Dave, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the biggest issues companies will be facing from a talent perspective in 2023. Are we prepared or not to address these issues? You know, I think the issue doesn't start with talent. And but I got to say, it is fun to have a set of solicited questions. I made a mistake once. I was teaching a class actually with my wife a few months ago at a university when there were 100 students. And we said, any question goes to get started. So they'd get to know us. Their first question is, how much did you make last year? And I thought, any other question goes. (laughs) Uh, So I appreciate it. I've not previewed these questions and just look forward to it. One of the things I think that we in HR often make a mistake is we start with the question of talent. What's new in talent? And we all know the trends, skill-based organization, employee experience, DEI, training, mobility, retention. I think if I were guiding somebody to help about talent next year, I would walk in to a business leader and start with the question, what does our business need to do to succeed? What does our business need to do? Is it cut cost? We see some of that currency in high tech and cycles go up and down. Is it product innovation? Is it more share per customer? Is it using technology differently? And I think if we start with the question, what does the business need to succeed in its marketplace? Then we come back and say, what can I do in talent to make it happen? And my view is, instead of saying, here's the solution, it's like going into a restaurant and saying, I don't want to look at your menu. I want a cheeseburger. Well, instead of starting with the cheeseburger, you say, look at this menu of options. I could have fish. I could have steak. I could have salad. I could have quinoa. I got to ask you, JP, if you had a pick, what would you pick off that menu? I'd probably go pizza. Uh, You got it. I love pizza. I got pizza. (laughs) And I think in talent, if we start with the answer is pizza, that's not going to be very helpful. I think the starting point is what do we have to do as a business to succeed in our marketplace? And then in HR, I hope I've got a menu of options. Maybe the issue is is letting people go. We got to cut costs. That's an issue. Maybe it's creating a new, maybe it's creating more customer service. That means we may have to hire people. Maybe it's creating more revenue per customer. Maybe that's restructuring the company. I can bring the talent solution, but first I've got to figure out what the problem is. Dave, you're so right. We need that business perspective. Why do you think sometimes we just, we just go to our own stuff, our HR, our talent. And of course, we're not saying ED's wrong. I think the same way. What are the trends? But I, I didn't say, I, I what do, are the trends in business? I do the same. In fact, I started a session yesterday to a group, and I won't name the group or the company. And I said, what's the biggest challenge in your job today? I'm working on DEI strategy. I'm working on leadership development. I'm working on compensation. And I stopped and I said, I'm going to change your assumption. What's the biggest challenge in your job today to help my company succeed in the marketplace? And if that's not the deriving assumption, I agree with DEI, I agree with leadership, I agree with culture change, whatever the agenda is, so that we succeed in the marketplace. And I think, JP, it's so easy to get locked into what we do because we're locked into our world and our mindsets. We often don't think about what's the value we create because of what we do. I love your question. There are some new items on the menu. Let me just say that now. I think there's three or four new items. The work on skill-based organization is evolving that I think has been fascinating. It's not about workforce. It's about work task. I think there's some new items on that menu about employees. So now I'm doing pizza with anchovies and we'll experiment. It may or may not work. There's some new items on that menu around obviously hybrid work. How do we connect with people no matter where they are? 
So I think the menu is expanding, but I think the starting point is not the menu. The starting point is what does the customer need outside the company that we can help our business team deliver? Yeah. And I think that the commonality has always been how do we create winning organizations that are growing, thriving, but how we do that has changed over the years, just like our name is involved from personnel to HR. Now we're getting more sophisticated in terms of how we can support the business, whether it's skill-based training, people analytics, or design organizational network analysis. Different tools are coming out, but yeah. the end should still be about driving the business. You know, there's a line that I like, and I'm sure I stole it from somebody. And if I did, yeah, let me give you credit. Now, if a company doesn't succeed in the marketplace, there is no workplace. If you don't have customers, you'll never have employees. I mean, really silly. I'll give an example. I gave a talk to a large company, one of the big fortune companies, and I had their hundred senior business leaders. And I don't know about you, JP, but I get nervous. I'm over my head. I'm stretched. I'm outside my comfort zone. How in the world are they going to listen to me? Probably 70% of the hundred had PhDs in science and physics and math, a high tech company. And I thought, how do I get their attention? So they'll listen because this is an HR person and the scientist. So I started and I said, what do these companies have in common? Digital equipment. And they knew that because they were in technology. Enron, Toys R Us, Sears, Circuit City. And somebody yelled out, they all went broke. And I yelled back and I consulted for every one of them. And there was about a five, about a two second pause. How stupid is this guy? And then they finally said, if he's willing to admit that he's not stupid. And I said, let me tell you what I learned. All of those companies were superb. And you, you could add to the list, People Express, People Airlines. They were great inside. They had great practices. They were the iconic companies. But they didn't match the marketplace. Toys R Us knew how to do location. They knew how to sell toys. But they missed electronics and technology. And Amazon came in and just cleaned their clock. And so my take to that company was don't fall prey to those mistakes. Don't just look at what you're doing. Start with the marketplace outside, call it outside in. What's happening and how can we inside begin to build an organization and people systems that allow us to respond to those external changes? I mean, that's academic, but that's the agenda is that we've got to, we've got to not just do HR work. We've got to do HR work so that it creates value in a marketplace. So well said, Dave. The next question, let's go on the next question from Jan John. It's more around talent. Jan is thinking about succession planning, where it's working, best ways to develop the most needed skills for the C-suite, and how to deal with the fallout from younger, more agile staff who maybe are feeling like they're being passed over. Jan, if you could solve all those problems, you could write a book and you would be on the next podcast with JP. So I admire that. Let me tell you the thing I see we make a mistake with, and you're going to see in this podcast a common theme. Let me give an example. Working in a company, I could even, I, I won't share the company. It doesn't matter. It's a principle. And some of these principles, they're timely, as you suggest. They're new and they're timeless. The principles are consistent. Company hired a, promoted a new CEO, 55, dynamic, aggressive. The two or three other candidates left, which is sad, but that sometimes happens because they had opportunity. Six months into the tenure, the CEO who's hired passes away. Critical. Critical. And, and again, for all of us, the, the personal loss is more critical than a corporate agenda, but we get that and we get it, but that's a critical corporate agenda. So the board of directors is meeting 
We got to get a new CEO. It's only been six months. We lost our people. It's going to be hard to get them back. And here's how they started. Candidate A, candidate B, candidate C. The head of HR slammed the table. That's a slam on the voicemail. And he said, stop. I don't know when you or I in any meeting have slammed the table in, a, in an intense board meeting. And everybody stopped, looked at him, and he said, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. We're looking at candidate A, B, and C. We have not yet defined the conditions required and the skills necessary given the situation. Let's start outside in again. Given what we're trying to do as a company, what set of skills will our next CEO need? Now, some would say, okay, we'll bring in a consulting form and three months later, we'll have a skill set. Well, that's stupid. The board said, you're right. That's an obvious answer. Succession planning is not about the person. It's about the requirements of the position. And so that head of HR said, let's take a couple hours. What's going on in our industry? What do we see? How do we differentiate? What are our strengths, weaknesses? Again, all these strategic away day questions. What then are the skills we need in a CEO? And they listed seven or eight. And then they took candidate A, B, and C against the skill set. And so my comment, Jan, in succession is when we start with the requirements of the position, we will be then more able to identify which candidates matter most. And I think that's the piece I see in succession planning that we get enamored with the people rather than the requirements. Now, what does that mean for next generation? I think our job is to say, we're not going to look at your age. We're going to look at the skills. And age is not, I like that there are even some old people who have skills. <laughs> uh, I hope I'm one. And there are young people. We don't look at age. We don't look at gender. We don't look at race. We don't look at ethnicity. We don't look at background. Those may be skills to be inclusive and to be diverse, but we're really trying to get a set of skills, technical and political and cultural, that will help our company succeed in the marketplace. That's where I'd like to go. And I think, Jan, to the next generation, let me, uh, let me share one other story. And JP, you're letting me take off on stories. This was, um, and I'll mention, it's an old executive. His name was Larry Bossidy. He worked at GE, worked at Allied Signal. Great executive. And I was in a session with him once and he, and people were asking him, how do I get on your team? How do I get on your team? This is the message to the next generation. He said, I'm CEO, I'm president. I can handle 10 people. I can't manage a team of 30. I can't manage a team of 15. I can manage 10. Here's my advice to you. Get your ideas in front of me, not you. Over time, if your ideas keep getting winnowed up to my dis attention through those 10 people, I'll know who you are. Don't try to get on the team. Try to get your ideas in front of me. Mm. And that's my advice to the next generation. It's less political about your presence physically. It's more required, I think, to get your, in your ideas, your IP, your creativity in front. And, uh, and he said, I'll figure it out. We're not stupid. If your ideas keep popping up, you'll show up. And so you have great ideas, but you've got to make sure that people are going to look at them and listen to great them. And comment. so packaging them, persuading people, sometimes having your boss believe that it was their idea or they're going to get on board for it. It's going to make them look good. Great. Because it is your idea, right? That is how you and, continue and to move When on. Larry said it, it really resonated. I thought, instead of pushing, I want to be in the meeting. I want to be in the meeting. I got my ideas there. And his comment was, over time, if you're the person that creates the frames and the ideas, the thought leader, if you will. We'll figure out who you are. If your boss is just stealing your ideas, it won't take us forever. We're not stupid. We'll figure out and you'll, you'll be there. 
relax. So that is really what leadership is, is adding value. And the person who's building that plan and setting a vision, whether it's perfect or not, putting yourself out there, that is what leadership is all about. So great, great advice. Great comment. The next question comes from uh, actually a podcast guest, Steve Hunt, <laughs> who I really admire. Steve's, uh, you know, works at SAP. He said it's a little bit long-winded, but I'm going to try to have Just a, a shout out. Steve has done some great work. I've seen his oh. work. I've seen his writing. I've endorsed it. Steve has just done great work. So a shout he, out. He to really Steve. is. Yeah. Talent Tectonics is the latest book. It's a great tremendous book. book. So he talks about for decades, we have talked about the need for HR to have a voice at the leadership table. While we've made a lot of progress, many organizations continue to treat HR as a support function to engage after leadership decisions have been made as opposed to a strategic partner to guide decision-making before the company commits to a course of action. What are the barriers to prevent CHROs from having the same level of influence as CFOs and to guiding the strategy and overcome them? Um, Steve, people should read your book. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's really interesting because Again, I'm trying to do this through stories so that people will listen. I Probably about three months ago, I was on a flight. A professor at the university was on a flight with me with his spouse. I got off and the professor introduced me to his spouse and said, this is Dave Alrich. He teaches at the school. He does HR. And I could just hear in that, I don't know, syrupy, demeaning voice, that's the HR. It's it's Scott Adams, Dilbert. It's the policy police. It, you know, it's just... And I nodded my head and I said, you know, thank you very much. I'm really sorry that I'm offending you. And, uh, and then I thought about that. And I thought, we need to say, what are we doing in HR? What we're doing in HR is creating value in the marketplace. Our people, our organization, our culture, our leadership are all designed so that customers and investors have a better experience. The headline is HR is not about HR. It's about success in the marketplace. Steve, I think the barrier is we in HR have to change that mindset. I use the story. What's your biggest challenge today? It's an HR practice. No. How do I connect what I do? I don't know how to get there. I said earlier in our pre-conversation briefly, I feel sometimes like Sisyphus pushing the ball up the mountain and we're not there. I interviewed head of HR in a large company two months ago. And I said, what conversations are you having with investors. And she said, what do you mean investors? Well, investors, I mean, who's buying stock in your company? You have an investor day, you have an investor call. What are you saying? She said, I don't know. I, I mean, I have two minutes. We have high employee engagement. If I were her, I would be screaming. Do you realize that 80% of a company's market value is the intangibles? Now we could look at her company specifically, and we've done that with companies. 80% is intangibles. And at 30% of those intangibles are organization of people. I've got into as senior HR folks, Stephen, I'm trying to give you the data that may help you do it and said, your market value is $10 billion. And the HR person said, okay, that's nice. Given your price earnings ratio is 20% below industry average. And we look at your price earnings, the value of those intangibles, do people value it? That's $2 billion if you were industry average. When you go to the executives, you should talk about making up that $2 billion. You're not here to ask for $100,000 or $200,000 to run a training program. You're asked to get a larger chunk of the $2 billion left on the table. 
And the executive said, well, I don't, I don't want to share that we're 20% below industry average because then the, the executives will feel bad. What the heck? They should feel bad. And you should be able to help them solve that. I worked with another executive. I said, your market value is 30 billion. You're 15% below the industry average. He looked at me and he said, you think I don't know that? I'm the CEO. My stock is undervalued. Can you help me discover that four and a half billion? And I said, yeah, let's go talk to HR. And he said, HR. And I said, a lot of that 40, four and a half billion, 30% from our research is people and organization. Let's get our head together. So that's the conversation, and I'll end this diatribe. I'm hoping you, in your podcast, and I, through some of the work we do, can get HR people to have new conversations with investors, with customers, with communities, with boards of directors, not just with employees today, but new conversations about the value we create. And then that professor in Michigan would say, wow, Dave's doing some incredible stuff. That's shaping that HR agenda. Now, Steve, that's not happening. Back to Steve's question. I think we're getting better. And thanks to podcasts, JP, like yours and others, we're trying. Thanks, Dave. You may not remember this. We had a conversation a long time ago when you're doing some executive coaching in an organization I worked in. I picked you up and at the airport. We didn't have Uber back then. And I asked you, I said, you know, we've made a lot of progress in HR, but it seems like we have a long way to go. And your answer was this. You said, JP, you know, 20% of the organizations are progressive and doing things really well. 20% are not doing very good at all. They're really transactional. They're really just having to respond day to day to put out fires. And then the 60% in the middle are trying to figure it out. And it always stuck with me. And I said, that seemed like such a simple answer. But you know, when you think about it, that 20% that's investing in HR, they are the ones that have the bigger leadership brands. They've got great employment brand, employee experience. And they probably have higher stock prices and valuations. We've probably changed a lot more than we think. And maybe it's 30 or 40% are doing better. I don't know if you think that ratio is still the same, but it stuck with me. And that's probably been 10 years since we had that conversation. Wow. I'm, uh, thank you for reminding me. What's fascinating about those numbers, 20, 60, 20, I don't care what they are. They could be 30, 50, 20. I mean, that's not the issue. It's If you want to find bad HR people, like my colleague at Michigan, uh, Derissa, about HR, there's a bottom 20%. I'll go help you find them. And, and some of them aren't going to change. It's just that, and it, this isn't just HR. I could do finance, IT. I could even do podcasters um, and professors. Um, I think also we should leave the top 20% alone. Don't get in their way. Mm-hmm. I love focusing on that 60%. And I think, in fact, we have data. I love data. The 60% are getting better. We have 35 years of data on HR skill sets. We've done eight rounds of data. For seven rounds, starting 1988 through about 2000, about 19 uh, or 2018, the skill sets of HR people have gone up as measured and seen by others. So HR people are getting better. In 2021, they dropped. Hmm. At first, that just shook me up. And then here's what my take is. Let's assume, JP, you're going to a really nice restaurant. If you could pick your best restaurant in the world that you were going to, there was I would pay for and, and you want to really get me, what restaurant would you go to? What's the best you can think of? This is a tough question, Dave. We had a great restaurant here in Dallas. Uh, say Nobu. Nobu is really good. I'll Nobu. go for Nobu. Expensive, high-end, fine dining. Ruth's Chris, whatever it is. Now think of a lower-end cafe. 
I always use Denny's as an example, and I get upset with that. But I ate at Denny's a month ago. My wife said, you use Denny's. Let's go eat there. And it's a good contrast. Which one gets more complaints? Nouveau, is that it? Yeah, yeah, Nouveau. Nouveau. uh, Nouveau or Denny's? Nouveau. Uh, Probably Denny's. No. Denny's doesn't get complaints Mm. because the expectations are low. I think the reason the competency, that's a trick question, but it's an interesting intuition. I think the competencies of HR are rated lower today in part because we expect more. The COVID crisis, the emotional malaise that followed that, the emotional endemic, the people centricity. Everyone's now talking. I just talked to somebody who was at Davos, the World Economic Forum, the World Business Forum. The hot topics are people and organization, not from HR people, investors, political leaders, customers. I think the expectations on HR are higher than they've ever been. I think we're the nouveau restaurant of the future and we got to increase our game. That's why I love this kind of podcast. HR folks, watch out. The tsunami of intent and the tsunami of attention is coming. Well, you're right. I think the expectations have really, really have risen over the last, you know, three years, two to three years, really due to the pandemic and the talent shortage we had, right? Which is, is continuing. Some of the demographic shifts are just going to continue in the future. But the next question actually is perfect. And I want to come back to how we raise our game because I have multiple questions that came through around that. But Martha Ruiz said she wanted to get your assessment of professionals without an HR background who are getting the top people spot in orgs. She's personally reported to HR leaders who didn't have that traditional people function background and they were great. But does it speak to a lack of understanding of the important but technical aspect of our job? It's a great question. And I wish there was an easy answer. I think the answer is the process. Let's go through the two. I move someone into the top HR job who has deep HR expertise. What have they got to be good at? And you said it brilliantly. They got to be good at business. Because if they can't link their expertise to business success, they're going to be an afterthought. On the other hand, I move somebody in who's very good at business, but they don't know HR. To that group, my advice to Martha and others is, Don't try to be doing HR if you don't know HR. There is a body of knowledge about learning and staffing and compensation. If you don't come from an HR background and get moved into the top HR job, surround yourself with experts and then listen to them. You don't have to be the expert as the top person. And it's the same kind of idea if you're the HR person without a a solid business background. You go out and start take a finance person to lunch. Get to know some of the finance. Join a board if you're the CHRO. I've learned a lot when I've had the privilege of being on some public boards because the sessions are not about HR. They're about what's our uh, capital structure? What's our risk ratio? How do we manage risk? Wow, getting into those discussions, I think the head of HR without a business background can begin to learn. So I actually, in some ways, Martha, don't I don't have a bias where you come from, but I have a bias where you're going to. And if I'm weaker in business, get to know it. If I'm weaker in HR, surround myself with people who have it. I got to make one other comment. Some people say HR matters because HR people are becoming CEOs. And we see cases of that. We see it at GM. We see it in other places. I actually at first thought, wow, that's really cool. And then I take umbrage. Why? That says the only way you're really good in HR is if you leave the function. No, you can be great in HR without being a CEO. Great HR people are great business people. Somebody showed me a picture a couple months ago on, on LinkedIn, on the internet, 
And it was three women who happened to be heads of HR. And the comment, and they posted it on, on LinkedIn, was, what do you see? Three women, heads of HR. And my comment back was, I see three great business leaders. I don't see gender. I don't see HR. I don't see those stereotypes. These three people, they're women. That's all great. They're HR. They are great business leaders. And that's where I hope, Martha, we can be as the senior HR people. No matter where you come from, we're helping the business succeed. Yeah, I think that's really clear. We've got to become business leaders. The best HR people are business leaders. They think of themselves that way. I'm an executive. I'm a business executive who happens to do HR. So what was Um, your training in school, JP? What did you study? uh, No, I have a PhD in organizational psychology. and um, Undergrad? uh, Psychology and communications. Yeah, I'm betting you didn't take a lot of accounting courses and finance courses. I have an undergrad in English. I, I mean, I, anyway, there's a longer story there. My, <laughs> my PhD is also more organization. I was not grounded in finance. But you know what? You can learn this stuff. I, I'm not a CFO. I never would be. I wouldn't claim to be. But I'm betting with your PhD, with your psychology and background, you can figure out some of the business issues you're worried about. I counseled HR people is very simple. Go look at your income statement, your balance sheet, and go find a finance person and go through every line in that financial data and understand where it comes from and what causes it and what the implications are. It's 20 vocabulary words. If you can't learn 20 vocabulary, EBITDA, if that's the agenda, uh, SGNA, if that's the agenda, net present value, if that's the agenda, if you can't learn 20 vocabulary words, Anyway, I won't say the rest. We also live in a day and age, we're so lucky that there are courses online, YouTube videos, websites that'll help you with. There's terrific books that I'll post in the show notes. One of my favorite books is actually Finance for Non-Finance Managers. What's the name of it again? uh, It's Finance for Non-Finance Managers, I believe. Great book. Yeah. Great book. It's really great you bring that up though, Dave. And, you know, no relish of your background, you have to continue to improve yourself, especially around business perspective. Now, I grew up in a household. My dad had a PhD in economics and was an entrepreneur. And he actually did gum and candy machines. And so at 15, he taught me how to go out to stores and put out gum and candy machines. And so I've always been around business, but my mom was a marriage and family counselor. So I always had this business and people mix. I've always loved to read Fortune Magazine, Wall Street Journal. You're reading the news and seeing what's happening. And I think you learn that way. And I think that takes time. But if you're not interested in business at all, you may not be super successful in HR because you're going to at some point hit a ceiling where people are expecting you and demanding you to understand that P&L or understand how the market, the go-to-market strategy is and what that means. Do you speak a second language? I don't, no. I, uh, we moved to Montreal for three years to do some service for our church and had to speak French. Je ne parle pas tellement bien en français. I could speak, and I speak bad French. I speak bad French. And I just demonstrated that. I wanted to prove that to your listeners. <laughs> but here's the insight. I can get around. I can get around in French. I'm not fluent. I have an accent. That's the level of finance we should know. I don't need to be 100% proficient in the financial disciplines of a company, but I got to be able to talk the language. I got to be able to essentially find the bathroom, order food, converse. And I think sometimes in HR, we get intimidated because we think we have to be perfect at something rather than sufficient. And we don't have to be perfect in finance to be able to figure out that if your firm has cash flow, you have net money left over after you paid all your expenses from what you sold, you're going to be more successful. Okay. I get that. We all get that. Now let's go on and move on. How do we create it? So 
I love what you just said. I love what yeah. you just said. And I'm embarrassed that I just spoke bad French to your listeners. Uh, it was a great example. Another thing that has been coming up, we've got a question around from Ken Keener. He actually asked a question for us to consider with all the valuable focus on data science and analytics, where does the role of intuition and gut instinct fall into the HR's leader's toolkit? How do you see that playing out? I love it. I love it. Analytics, people assume that analytics is quantitative structured data in a spreadsheet. And I like analytics. My PhD, you're, uh, what did you do your dissertation on? I bet your listeners don't know. <laughs> they don't know. I did an employee commitment. Good. And I was at Taco Bell and used their stores. We looked at turnover and employee commitment and store profitability. So did you have some statistics? You looked at commitment and a score, turnover, profitability, and you did the, yep. the statistics. We did statistics, of course. Yep. And that's where people think analytics is, that there is analytics and it's called structured data. It's called quantitative analysis. There's a lot of statistics. But you know, there's a whole other field of statistics called qualitative, unstructured data, observation, anthropologist, ethnography. I think you got to do both. I think we need the quantitative stuff. But how do you determine what to go test the Taco Bell across however many stores? I sit in a restaurant and I observe. When I coach business leaders, they often say, give me the data. And I say, why don't you go sit in a store for a couple hours? Tell me what you see. Tell me what you observe. What do you feel? Then come back and couple the two. Because if you have quantitative data without instinct, you're going to only measure the past. That's generally what quantitative data does. If you have qualitative data without quantitative data, you be, your observations may not be generalizable. It's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. It's old. I was doing work with one of the great executives in the world. His name was Jack Welch, who's passed away. Great executive. And we were trying to do some culture change work. And I said, let me show you the data that we're looking at. And he said, don't give me the data. How long do you think it takes me when I walk into a plant or a facility or a site before I know what the culture is? He said, I know within 15 minutes. You can give me all the data you want. I've been a Taco Bell after you've done enough studies. I bet even today you could walk into a Taco Bell and define and intuitively say, I think I know by my instinct what's going on here. And it wouldn't take you too long. Yeah, final example of that. I'm coaching a leader. He has been the CEO in a company for 10 years. He started as a general manager at age 30 in Brazil, now the CEO of a global company. And he said, I'm debating if I should let this person go. I need to go get data. And I looked at him and I said, you've been a senior executive for 30 years. What's your gut tell you? And he said, that's not the answer I usually get. And I said, what did you wake up this morning and feel? In the same week, a couple of years ago, or the same month, I'm coaching another executive who's 30, high-tech company, $2 billion valuation. Dave, should I fire this person? And I looked at him and said, don't trust your gut. You don't have one. <laughs> I mean, go get some data. Notice the contrast. I, and I think to the question, knowing when to use data to validate intuition and knowing when to use intuition because you have experience is one of the real arts of leadership. Absolutely. That is definitely the art of leadership. Very challenging because you have to be self-aware as well to know oh. that your gut is telling you something that maybe you want to make a choice that you want the data to see something. You want to make a decision. So now you're looking for 
confirming evidence, right? Well, and, and that confirmation and, bias. And I think, oh, confirmation bias. There comes that PhD. That's really <laughs> cool. And statistics have a problem. Let me give one other example. I did a few years ago, a plant tour in a very nice plant. And we had the, the plant manager, the CEO, and a group of us. At the end of the tour, and we went around and everybody was doing their Six Sigma quality platform and their flip chart. And we went back to the office and one of the people I was with looked at the plant manager and CEO and said, you've got a problem. And I thought, geez, I just did two hours. I didn't, you know, everybody was dressed well. The plant was clean. The flip charts were organized. There were statistics. And the plant manager was taken back and the CEO. And they said, what's going on? He said, we just spent two hours in your plant with your team and a couple of other senior executives. Not once in two hours did any of your senior managers go offline and grab an employee and say, Sally, how's your daughter doing in high school? Joe, how's your mom? I don't know why I get emotional on that. But I mean, not once did I see some of that affect, some of that personal touch. And he said, I think that's a problem. I don't have data. I mean, I, commitment scores, I don't, have, I don't have JP's analytics. But my gut says, I want leaders who can go put their arms around the employees once in a while. Not everyone, every time. But I want leaders who feel what's going on in that plant. And I didn't see one in two hours. Now, back to the question. To me, that's the qualitative side that I hope we can embellish and not go too far that way. Okay. Last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR in the next five years? Very simple. Value added. It's not new. Uh, I think there's timely and timeless. I think HR has always been about creating value. We just did. And uh, depending on when people hear this, it'll be out. I'm just, in fact, in the middle of writing it up. The people issues are getting more attention than ever. We talked about that at the beginning, all the conferences. Nine consulting firms have come out with their new HR model. And I just went through them all. And I'm putting together, what are we learning? Here's what we're learning. They're still almost all focused inside the company. Our customer is the employee. We've got to build agility. We've got to get experts talking to generalists. We've got to do what we need to do in HR to build our credibility. My take is I look at that work, and it's brilliant work by folks who I admire so much. What's the value added in the marketplace? And I think when you approach HR, it's where we started. What does my activity today do to create value for others in the future? And I think if we can get that headset, it changes the way we begin to think about the world. And the great questions you sourced, I'll have that. So I want to do, I want to do talent so that my customers buy products from me. I want to do compensation so that. And getting that value mindset is just so critical. And the other piece I would add, and it's my bias, keep learning. We talked 10 years ago, evidently, the 2060-20 story. My personal commitment is somewhere between 15 and 25% new material every 12 to 18 months. And you say, oh, that's not a big deal. That's a big deal. And it's hard. It's a lot. So am I that observer of a plant? Am I seeing things? And, and I'm listening right now. We did the pandemic. We did the endemic, the emotional health. What's next? I'll just tell you what I'm starting to feel. As I observed qualitatively, I think the next, we've had a physical crisis with the physical pandemic. We've had an emotional mental health crisis. We get a lot of stress stuff. I'm thinking, and I'd love your thoughts on this because you talk to so many people. 
I think we're starting to run into a busyness crisis. Everyone I talk to is just feeling busy, busy, mm-hmm. busy, busy, busy. I don't understand that yet, but that's me as well. When it, I'm just busy, I hope people are thinking and observing in ways that will create value. Dave, thank you so much. Value added HR so that we can drive the business. Thank you so much for being on the future of HR. It was a pleasure, Dave. I'm not done yet. Oh, good. All right. What let's would go. you say? <laughs> You're the podcast. You get to listen to so many great people. What would you say would be out there in the future? I don't want to, I want to learn. I see HR continue to be even more business focused. I think we're getting more business leaders, people coming with MBAs or coming out of line rules or just HR leaders who are realizing that the only way to add value is to speak the language of business. And I think that's continuing. Um, I also, we've got a lot of young, smart, Gen Z, millennials, whatever you want to call them, coming to the workforce that approach work differently. And it's changing dynamics. It's changing uh, expectations for, am I going to answer emails at 10 o'clock at night? Am I going to take PTO? Am I going to take parental leave? I'm going to do things differently than generations in the past have done that. Nice. And I think we'll have to really adapt to that as we go forward if we want to win that workforce. Nice. I don't know what's going to change the C-suite. I don't know how that's going to change. I think those old guards and power structures change slowly, but it will absolutely change the future of work, but it might be 15 years down the road. I hope people take what you just said and copy it and paste it everywhere because you're observing what's out there. I mean, that's, and you may be right, you may be wrong. I may be right, I may be wrong. But that's the inquisitiveness that I think leads us to a better future. I always almost end my sessions with a very simple line, the best is yet ahead. People have said, and I would ask you, what's the best year of your life? And my wife said, the year we were married, the year our kids left home. <laughs> and my answer is always the next year, the next year. And uh, absolutely, that's what you just laid out beautifully. The next year is going to be the best year. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate being on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Dave for sharing his insights on why HR is not about HR, but helping the business to succeed in the marketplace. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Rob Kaiser, who's an expert on leadership development and leadership versatility. In our conversation, Rob and I will discuss his career and his perspectives and research that leaders are made, not born. It's a conversation you won't want to miss as Rob is one of the smartest guys in leadership development. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.